Welcome to the I Love Humans podcast. My name is Josh Taransky. It's great to have you on board with us. This is the third episode in season one. Can't believe we've made it already three episodes. Appreciate you tuning in. And uh, hopefully you live locally here in Southeast Baltimore. That's what the podcast is about. We're talking about people care in Southeast Baltimore. So we've already talked uh, about homelessness and how the homeless are being cared for. Uh, We have spoken uh, with businesses that are hiring youth over the summer. That was last episode. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about food access. All right, it's June 21st. And I am in my van heading down to an unnamed grocery store in Colombia to pick up about 700 pounds of food. So I live in Butcher's Hill off Baltimore Street, and uh, we run the Compassion Center off Eastern Avenue. So we do everything here in Southeast Baltimore. But right now, our primary source of food for the people we care for is down in Colombia. Yesterday morning, we got a call that there was an extra load of food available at this store in Colombia. We're, we're, we have our normal Friday mornings when we can pick up food from the same store, but there was an extra opening available today, Thursday morning. The way it works is this grocery store donates their food to a nonprofit umbrella organization. The nonprofit umbrella organization has different representatives that actually go and pick up the food. So I show up at nine in the morning. The grocery store has gone through. They've identified items that are close to their sell-by date. They've got flowers. They've got fresh fruits and vegetables. They've got stuff in their, they've got stuff in their fridge and their freezer. And I load it all up into my van and drive it back up here to Southeast Baltimore. And then I have a team of people who help divide all that stuff up into boxes. We're gonna step back from the process that I went through today of delivering food and and getting this food to people. And let's jump into a couple of interviews that have to do with this research process. The first person I want to introduce you to in this episode is Miss Neal. She is the center coordinator at Douglas Homes, which is located in Southeast Baltimore. I've done a number of projects with her. She is a go-getter. Once she gets your number, you will get a phone call from her for something that she needs. Here's Miss Neal. Well, first of all, I'm a service coordinator, and I'm primarily an advocate for the residents, and I'm sort of like the liaison and the go-between between the residents and management. I worked in this particular role as a service coordinator for nine years. I'm nationally certified. I have to get 12 hours uh, every year to stay certified. So we go to a conference on a yearly basis to get out to you know we up, well, upgrade our certification. Yeah. yeah. So describe generally where Douglas is at. Well, geographically, we're right next to John Hopkins Hospital. So you would think there would be a lot of uh, things available, but not so. <laughs> So we're right next to, we are actually located at 1500 East Lexington Street, right between uh, Caroline and uh, uh, Bond Street, 
and the other corridor would be Fayette and Orleans Street. We're right between there. Okay, so in regards to food um, in this area, you know that this is a food desert priority area. What does, what does that practically mean for these residents? Um, it means that uh, towards the end, of, the middle end of the month, they don't have any funds to buy food because they buy food from local areas. And of course, they are overpriced. They can't really plan a meal because they don't really know on a day-to-day -day basis what they're going to get. And if you take a family of four, they are some uh, trying to get to a market. Uh, if you think it, there are there are markets outside of the perimeter, but if you take a family of four, get on a bus, trying to come back, and uh, there's just nothing available in terms of food. We have about 1,400 residents. Wow. Yeah. And most of the, so those are families? Yes, families. We have some seniors that, you know, that live alone. And that's another thing. And towards the end of the, the month, we always have seniors that are looking for food. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes they're not able to get distances. Uh, they did try to do the virtual food market, but that didn't go over well. Um, uh, because in reference to the seniors, they wanted to visually see their food. They didn't want someone just bringing them whatever they pick up. So that, because we tried to do that for the seniors, but it didn't fare well. And what's the, um, I know in Perkins, the average household income is about $8,800 annually. Is that about the same for Douglas? Um, maybe a little less. I'm not quite sure. I heard the number, but I don't remember right at this moment. Okay. Yeah, but I think it's less than that. Okay. Good. Well, we appreciate what you're doing, and uh, hopefully the neighborhood is connected with you. I know we just did a big playground for the kids. Any upcoming events that you want um, local outside of Douglas, you want people to help you with or be aware of? Well, across the board, there's a variety of programs. Um, we're going to, on the 23rd, of course, we're having the big grand opening for the playground. It's Days of Fun Day. It's, a, it's an event just for the community. It's appreciation and thankful for having. They're just grateful that they were able to get the playground. Okay, great. Thank you for your time. Just south of Douglas Homes is City Spring Elementary School. And I want to introduce you next to a friend of mine named Mr. Colick, who is an employee there at the school and has some great insights into this whole issue of food and how it affects the 800 kids that attend City Spring Elementary and Middle School. Uh, my name is Ahmad Colick, and I'm the community school coordinator at the Child First Community School Coordinator at City Springs Elementary Middle. And tell me a little bit about City Spring Elementary. Where is it at and what kind of kids are there? Who's there? Who attends? So it's southeast Baltimore, also in Carolina, in between Pratt Street and Lombard Street. Um, if anyone knows about Baltimore, it's in the area that is uh, gentrifying. So it's a high poverty school, but the zip code is one of the most expensive zip codes in Baltimore City because um, it encompasses Fells Point, uh, parts of Canton, and uh, parts of Harbor East that are becoming major um, tourist attractions. So there's like there the school is in a zip code where a lot of the um, structures are changing. So it's a very interesting dynamic to have a school with such a high poverty rate amongst, amongst students, and a zip code was that is becoming more and more wealthier. Um, our students do not have access to the money that they are having a zip code. So a lot of our students. Um, uh, do not have healthy meals at home. They do not have access to healthy meals. They don't have access to grocery stores. So to my knowledge, in my year in a community, in this part of the town, I have not seen a grocery store 
that is affordable to everyone in here. A lot of our like younger students, a lot of them go to local like bodega esque type places to get food. Um, so early in the morning, even though we serve breakfast and we serve lunch, and for people who participate in the after school program, they also get supper. Kids still bring their own like snack foods that they get in the morning on the way to school. So they might eat like chips. Now it's not no, it's not uh, abnormal to see kids eating Doritos on the way to school. We in a pack of candy on our way to school. We even had like a little bag that you know they got from a little uh, grocery store, a little small convenience store that's full of like uh, high sugar, high sodium snacks um, at a very, very, very young age. And it's um, it, it hurts them more than they think it does. So as you're talking, I'm, I'm realizing that this dynamic of being in a zip code that is wealthy but being a underprivileged youth yeah. – Low-income youth means that the the food you have access to is pretty expensive. Yes. Yeah. So the grocery store, the nearest grocery store to my school was Whole Foods, and there's people who are middle class who can't afford Whole Foods. There's a Safeway further out, but a lot of people who was in my school do not have cars. Yeah. So you have to figure out like so even I'm still figuring out like how do y'all go to the grocery store? So sometimes people walk. Um, way up Caroline Street, almost like a shop right, which is almost a mile of a walk, uh, all the way up Caroline Street to get grocery stores. Sometimes they have relatives that take them and drive them to the store. Um, but it, it affects them because a lot of, like, even parents, like, the you can't just, like, even, when I go home, when me and my wife say, here, I'm going to run to the store and grab some things. And we go to the store and we get some stuff that we need, so forth and so forth. Like, that's a privilege that we have that a lot of my families that I work with do not have that ability because, for one, they don't have access to a car. The transportation in Baltimore is very flawed. And then just walking to the grocery store is not something that everyone is able to do because it's not it's, – it's, it's a grocery store on the outside of Perkins, um, down the street from Perkins, um, in, in Albemarle Square. There are several along Fayette Street. Uh, that kids stop, but there's a gro- like there's a dollar store that people use as a grocery store, you know, because got but they don't have any produce. Mm-mm. They have uh, a lot of processed foods. Right. They don't have like f- different varieties of cheese and milk and options there. So if you're lactose intolerant, you probably wind up drinking milk you shouldn't have because the local dollar store, which is being used as a grocery store, even though it's not, is often the case. So wow. it's 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 a very it's a tough dynamic to say yeah. least. So when I was younger, um, there used to be, you know how Lexington Market is the open market? It used to be yeah. one at Old Town Mall. Really? Until a few years ago when it became uh, more abandoned and stuff started leaving up. But there used to be a large open market. You can get your produce, you can get your milk and your pro, everything you need right there. Um, and I think when that left, that, 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 that attributed to the concentration of the food access because a lot of people lost that ability to get a lot of their produce and um, the meats and everything else they try to get. Uh-huh. I, yeah, so that, that was a big, um, that left a, like a vast hole in the uh, access to food in the community. Wow. It was very close. The crazy thing, as you describe this, like the picture that comes to mind, because I lived in Africa when I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And there in Africa, you've got some of these tribes that are in remote locations, and mm-hmm. you've got family members that will spend a good chunk of a day going to get water, mm. you know, walking seven miles, yeah. carrying the water on their head. Yeah. And it's like, here we are in the West, mm-hmm. in the middle of a city, and yeah. you've got people doing the same thing, but for food. Yes. 
You know, they don't have a transportation. <laughs> They've got to go all the way. And it just so happens we're like, we're taping this on a day where it's like 95 degrees outside. It's muggy. It's hot. Mm-hmm. And imagine just trying to carry two grocery bags in this temperature. It's like Yeah, and ridiculous. imagine if you have little kids, they can't carry bags with you. And you got to find either somebody to watch them or they got to go with you. Yeah, school's out. Yeah, school's out. I mean, that's why a lot of our kids, unfortunately, they go to the Burger Kings because Burger King is right there around the corner from the school. And they go to the carryout joint, the spots along certain streets near here. And they go to 7-Eleven, and then they might even walk all the way down to Royal Farms. But those aren't places to create a habit of uh, healthy eating. Yeah. Those aren't the places you go to to instill any level of, you know, this is what you eat for. This is a snack. This is, this is how you take this in. This is not something you can eat every single day. It's not good for you. And then that leads to some of our... We have students who are, you know, relatively young who's having health issues that's, that comes from the poor diets that they have. And even their families may have just from living in here and not having access to the food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the City Spring Elementary School is 95% Ooh, black. 90, like, probably like 98 Maybe 97. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're talking about a predominantly African-American community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so the the structures that exist, like this whole, it, it's not just food access, but you, which I appreciate, are emphasizing healthy eating. Yeah. And so because there is not good food access, what we're ending up with is an African-American community that is unhealthy. Yes. Yeah, that's 100% true. Which leads to a numerous of health issues for generations to have to figure out. Um, like when you have, when you see second graders, even kindergartners eating snacks in the morning, unhealthy snacks consistently, you already know in your head, like that is going to create a problem. Not tomorrow, maybe have a stomach ache next week, but four years from now, it might affect them in a way yeah. that's going to really hurt them. And then it also, it creates, um, uh, a complex relationship with healthy foods because they've become so attached to these snacks. When you do offer them an apple at lunch or you do offer oranges or whatever the fruit is for the day, right. they're less likely to eat it because they're like, I don't want, I don't have the taste for that. That's not, yeah. that's not the, something that I really want. So that it creates them like an unhealthy relationship with the food so that they eat as well. Because mm. you realize when they eat breakfast, it's probably like cereal at school, something that's easy to make that they used to. But the, the lunches is, is always a, is some level of fruit, so it's probably grapes, strawberries, apples, oranges, anything like that, a sandwich or a salad or anything like that they might get, but like a, also like a, a snack, so it could be applesauce or whatever, whatever, but it's not chips, it's not candy, it's not that thing that they eat every single day that they have this unhealthy relationship with, mm. that there's no level of, I'm going to eat some today and not tomorrow, but every day, yeah. every day. I don't know if you ever heard of the um, Salvation Army uh, grocery store on Barclay. I read the article that they were doing it. It is an amazing concept. They hire people from the community to run a grocery store. It's aimed at low-income residents to help them have healthy food access um, Mm. uh, options. And I think something like that that is aimed at people in a community who are not used to having stuff like that are not used to having access to food, but the ability to say, hey, this is built, this is made for you. We're going to hire people who you are familiar with to even work in the store so 
They can get not only a financial gain from having the, the grocery store inside the community, but also access to healthy food. Mm. It's like a like a double workforce development and community growth aspects. Yeah. It can help people on both avenues, but it, it can also change the relationships people have with communities, their relationship to big organizations working in the communities, and a level of trust they have, and their ability to say, hey, I want to stay here, because a lot of times people lose distrust when big things come on their community. Um, but that's a really good example of what is possible, and I would love for something like that to be included or a grocery store to be included in this vicinity for the people who live in Perkins, the people who live in Douglas, Albemarle Square, because Whole Foods is the only option. I love Whole Foods, but everybody can't afford Whole Foods. No. It's just no. not how it works. Yeah. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I love it. I want to come on again whenever you want me to. Great. Between Miss Neal and Mr. Colic, I feel like the picture has been somewhat shaped. Uh, we've got a better idea of, of the need. Let's talk with a city planner, somebody that's a part of the planning department in Baltimore City, about this issue of food and hear what the government is doing to try to address these issues. Here's Alice Wong. Alice, thank you so much being here with us. This is so fun. Yeah. Technically on your email, at the bottom of your email, mm -hmm. your uh, title is Food Access Planner, mm -hmm. and that's for the city of Baltimore. That is. So explain a little bit more like what you do, yeah. what your role is. Okay. So as a food policy, or I guess a food, food access planner, um, I am part of the Baltimore Food Policy Initiative, and that is nested within the Office of Sustainability within the Department of Planning. Explain how policy fits into this picture. Yeah, well, you know, when we think about policy, it's really citywide. And when we are talking about a citywide effort, you know, it, it involves everyone. So it's not yeah. just the neighborhoods where the greatest need is, but, you know, part of caring for the city is no matter where you live, do you care that there's people in the city that have need. Um, but I will also say that, you know, yes, we have this food environment map that shows where these healthy food priority areas are, um, previously known as food deserts. Um, but I will say that that definition of a healthy food priority area is based on four factors, right? So only if you have those four factors in your area does your area, is your area considered a priority area? Um, but, you know, those, it talks about, you know, healthy food availability index, a scoring system about, you know, how stores are scored in terms of the food they have available, um, talking about household income, talking about vehicle availability, and talking about distance to a supermarket. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, while maybe an area doesn't have all four of those factors, they could have three, you right. know, and so the need is still there, even if they don't fulfill all of those factors, there's still need. And so we want to also recognize that, you know, just because you may not live in these areas that are designated as a priority area, that doesn't mean that need doesn't exist. Um, and I think there's a need to also call that out and help people to see what are the needs in the community. Um, because, you know, the map that we create is really for policy, and it's to make strategic plans from a citywide lens. Mm. But that doesn't mean that people on the ground and their lived experience doesn't matter. And so for us, we really want to try to bridge both. One is understanding that we need a strategy to push policy forward, but also understanding that people have a right to share their narrative and, and allow their struggle to be real. Um, 
And so for folks who are kind of, you know, trying to figure out how does policy matter where they live, um, I think part of it is understanding that some of these policies, it's not just for these priority areas, but it's citywide. Mm. Um, and understanding maybe how do some of the things that are being pushed, you know, how can those access points really impact certain maybe hidden populations that maybe we're not thinking about or acknowledging. Yeah. So a priority area is mm -hmm. what was formerly known as a food desert. Mm -hmm. Why the um, name change? Because yeah. I love the name food desert. Yeah. But does it have negative connotations? <laughs> so, you know, we had a lot of conversations with residents and, you know, a lot of folks who are part of our Food Policy Action Coalition. And a lot of people that were talking to us, they just didn't like the word because they're yeah. like, well, a desert is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Mm. This is not naturally occurring. This right. is happening to us, you mm -hmm. know, um, and this is not something that we want to accept. And also, I think folks just wanted to really take back the, the narrative. The of language. What, yeah, yeah, take back the language and really be able to talk about their experience in a way that they want to talk about yeah. it. And so for us, we changed the name so that, um, you know, one is we wanted to kind of give people a greater space to, to talk about it however they want. And also for us to really say, you know, this is, this is really us trying to label areas to do policy change. And the term food doesn't, doesn't have to be part of that conversation. So what types of policies can influence good change? Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about policy, it, it's a full range. We're really starting to look at uh, this idea of good food procurement. And so from a city perspective, you know, this is an idea that really started in Los Angeles where they started seeing, well, if the city is creating all these contracts for food, how do we really leverage that? And, you know, just as corporations have this buying power, how does the city also have buying power? And so, you know, we were looking at that and we're trying to see, you know, you know, the city provides these summer meals to, to kids in the summer and the city also serves seniors meals throughout the year, you know, and there's other various contracts that the city has. Mm. And the question is, well, how do we really try to move some of this forward to really promote healthy, um, not just food, food, but good food. Yeah, good quality food. And yeah. if the city has that leveraging point, how do we really make sure that the contracts that we write, the, the request for proposals that we release, how do we make sure that those also require a, a higher standard for food, whether it's sourcing locally or ensuring that fresh fruits and vegetables are, are provided in every meal? Yeah. You know, and I think those are some of the things when we think about policy, um, how that can really help folks on the ground. Um, one of the other things that we, we were looking at, you know, we were looking at the distribution of SNAP, which people might know as EBT or food stamps um, or FSP. Um, but really what happened is, you know, those um, benefits were being released in a concentrated mass in the beginning of each month. And we realized because right. of that, the fluctuation of how people were buying their groceries were were like changing in the beginning of the month a lot of folks would be buying groceries and at the end it was slim so yeah they're that, calling me yeah so that, <laughs> exactly so that stability is like uh was you know is, is really challenging yeah right even at the grocery store thinking that grocers would have to staff a lot of folks in the beginning of the month but then staff fewer folks at the end so you know there's a lot of issues about the stability of um even the stores themselves and so, you know, one of the things that we were working on was, well, how do we spread out that distribution so that folks are not just getting it in the beginning of the month, but 
you know, that it's distributed to people throughout the month. So, yeah. for example, if your last name starts with an A, then you would get it at the beginning of the month. If your last name starts with, like, a W, it would be towards the end, just so that there would be an, a more equal distribution of benefits throughout the month. And, you know, one of the things that we realized, we were talking to some folks, and they noticed that because of that, prices at grocery stores were stabilized. And they were saying that they noticed that things were not really expensive at the beginning of the month, but they were, you know, prices were were a little more stable throughout the month, really? no matter when they would go. And for us, we realized, oh, that was not something that we necessarily, um, you know, it was one of the things that we were hoping, but, you know, to hear that that was actually making a difference for people's shopping experience was really great wow. to hear. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go to the second question here that I've got, mm -hmm. which is just this whole idea of Baltimore... Um, it has been wrestling, and there's been a huge discussion about uh, racial uh, equity. Yeah. Um, it's a good, really healthy discussion. Mm -hmm. I think Baltimore is one of the major players mm -hmm. in that discussion. Yeah. Um, so how does your office engage in that discussion, and yeah. why do you think it's an important aspect to consider in this whole arena of food? Hmm. So, you know, when... When the un uprising, when the uprising happened, um, there was a lot of conversation in our office in the Department of Planning. And prior to that, we had already talked a lot about um, things like structural racism in the food system and talking about really grappling through these ideas of redlining. Um, you know, as planners, that's something that, you know, in the office we talk about and wrestle with all the time. And, you know, when the uprising happened, you know, we really wanted to kind of move forward in a way that was productive. And so our office, we actually started an equity working group where we started really talking about, we did, we read books, we did racial equity training, we did undoing racism training, mm -hmm. you know, and we started talking about what does it look like to, to really think about structural racism. You know, I think a lot of times, um, when I talk to folks about structural racism, especially those who haven't dived deeply into this topic, you know, they say, well, Alice, I'm not racist. Alice, I don't treat someone who has a different skin color than me differently, you know? And, and I kind of challenge that, not about, like, you may think that, you know, you treat everyone the same and you love everyone, but the structures that we live in do not treat everyone the same and do not treat everyone with the same opportunities. Um, and, and we live in a structurally racist, you know, uh, construct, you know. And um, for us, I think we've been trying to figure out, well, how do we start working towards undoing some of those pieces from a policy perspective, from an infrastructure perspective? Um, and so for us, I, I would say through a food lens, um, we started something called the Resident Food Equity Advisors, where we're saying, you know, how do we create resident-informed policy? So, you know, we don't want to be just creating all this stuff without making sure that these are things that residents value or, and what residents think are important. So even this year right now, we're working on a corner store strategy where we have, we had a huge applicant pool where we had 80 applicants apply to be part of this group, um, and we selected 16 of them, and, you know, we are compensating them for their time, um, we meet with them about These are twice corner a month. stores? These are residents who oh, residents. live okay. um, in or near um, healthy food priority areas or who experience or have lived through 
really food access challenges. Um, so, you know, we meet with them. Uh, right now we've been meeting with them at least twice a month to talk through creating strategies. And we really want it to be like a resident-informed process yeah. and really making sure that we're not just, um, you know, I think sometimes we talk about, oh, like, let's go out and get people's thoughts. And I think sometimes when we talk to a larger group, there's, you know, you don't get an in-depth conversation because there's so many people talking. So in this smaller group where we're meeting multiple times, we're building relationship, we're being transparent with these folks, really educating them, informing them about our work and where we're coming from. And then they're also educating us and informing us where they're coming from and what mm. they're experiencing and sharing with us their priorities. And with that, we are working together to create these priorities that really um, are helping us to figure out, well, you know, what should corner stores look like in the city and, and what do residents feel like is an important value for them. Um, and so we are trying to really wrestle with um, how do we really give people a seat at the table and how do we really give people a place where they can't speak and, and have influence and have a place of power even. And mm -hmm. that's something we're trying to, to work towards. How would you challenge folks who want to start serving in the city, they want to be a part of what's going on in the city, um, and in just thinking through racial equity? Yeah. I mean, because I want to talk about, you know, finish up with just talking yeah. about what we can do and how people can act. But yeah. is there a way that people should change the way that they think first? You know, when we talk about racial equity, um, there's a lot about, you know, one of the conversations is around um, things like black food sovereignty. And that's something, there's um, some great work being done by Eric Jackson, who um, has started, he, who works in something called Black Yield, and they've just released this film um, called Strange Fruit, so I would really encourage folks to watch that. Okay. Um, and it's, it's about his experience in Cherry Hill, which is on the other side of town, but I think it really speaks to folks in the black community and their experience and how they see food in their lives. And mm. I think part of it is really understanding some of that history in Baltimore, some of that history in people's lives and how food has played a role. Um, and, and what it looks like for the black community to be kind of taking that narrative back and, and really figuring out ways to, to really have, um, have ownership of, of this food narrative, right? Um, there's folks like um, Heber Brown, who's a pastor who started something called the Black Church Food Security Network. Mm. And he's doing some great work too. And just these ideas of what does it look like to support black initiatives, what it looks like to support um, you know, what the black community is doing within their communities and, yeah. um, and really totally. supporting that. Alice is great. I appreciate her giving us some time. And I appreciate what the planning department and the other agencies involved with Food Pack are trying to do to address this problem from a 50,000-foot view perspective. Let's jump back down to Boots on the Ground, Southeast Baltimore. We'll finish up with an interview I did with... Leah Beachley, who is the service coordinator at Wolf Academy. She and I have worked together with some food projects, like with Mr. Colick, and her process that she's gone through to identify and access food is a great journey and something that I think we can all learn from. Okay, so my name is Leah Beachley. I'm the community school coordinator at Wolf Street Academy. 
Um, community school coordinator role is really about um, promoting the community school initiative um, within the school. And we say actually that it's a strategy. Community school is not you know, a program, it's a strategy, uh, which means that it's really all encompassing throughout um, kind of what we do during the school day and after school hours during the summer. Um, so that for me really means leveraging uh, a lot of the par local partnerships that we have, um, doing outreach with family, students, teachers, um, to make sure that our community feels safe, um, to make sure that our students have all the resources that they need to be successful academically, um, and that the families feel supported and included in their community. So we're a about this year we were about 230 was the number of students that we have. Um, we're right now around 81, 82% um, Latino population here um, with um, white and African American being kind of the next um, pockets of our, our population, but we are prim primarily Latino. Um, and we are located on South Wolf Street at the intersection of South Wolf and Goff. So we do know what we know about the school community based on uh, needs assessments that I do as part of the community school strategy. What we do know is that a lot of our families face food insecurity. Um, and one of the things that I did, didn't mention when I was going through the demographics was that the majority of our families are living at or below the poverty line. So we are serving a primarily low income group, although the school itself is nestled in a neighborhood that is higher income um, than a lot of other parts of Baltimore. So we do know through our needs assessments that we have a lot of families who are facing food insecurity. Um, and we have some ideas about why that is um, with our families not necessarily having access to transportation to get to grocery stores, corner stores having kind of some limited options for our families. Um, so those were some of the reasons why um, we realized that this was an issue for our families and ones that we wanted to address. Um, we did have families who would come and ask to get food from our emergency food pantry. But because we are a very small school, the building is tiny. It just sits on this little block um, and we have super limited space. We have nowhere to have a permanent food pantry. That's one of the big issues um, is that we just can't have, we don't have a storage space. Mm. Um, so what we've really had to do with the Maryland Food Bank, and this is historically, this is before I got to Wolf, um, we would do kind of quarterly big food giveaways. It would just happen one day every quarter um, whenever the food bank could come do a big drop off of food. We would bag it all up as fast as we could and dis distribute it the same day because there was nowhere to put any of the food. Um, and that just doing a quarterly food giveaway is not enough to address problems of food insecurity. Now kind of that's a little bit of the historical context. This is my first year at Wolf Street Academy. So um, I did come in with some ideas about, you know, what what we can do and wanting to learn more about what the community's actual needs are and what their desires are around, you know, different food access topics. Um, one of the things that I noticed a lot this year was that a lot of our families, particularly the um, Spanish-speaking families, um, were having a lot of issues with their food stamps applications. So I had endless amounts of parents coming into my office saying my food stamps have been suspended or my food stamps have been denied and I don't know why. Um, and that's something we're currently, I'm working with some others in the city to address. Uh, that is kind of a big question mark right now, like why this is happening. But that has only increased 
the issues surrounding food access for our families is that they were getting funds to be able to pay and the super expensive grocery stores that are closest to us, Safeway, Harris Teeter, um, Whole Foods, you know, there are some more expensive options in this area just because of the nature of Southeast Baltimore having some higher income residents. Um, so yeah, the lack of access to food stamps we know has been a huge impact on families being able to to get food. Uh, it took us, I think, probably eight months until we've really solidified, and eight months of pretty consistent work uh, to really solidify what we have now. Um, so I, at the beginning of this year, this is my first school year, so the beginning of, in the fall, kind of right out the gate starting this job, um, I worked with one of my social work interns, and I kind of, she and I worked collaboratively. So that was one of her big projects was finding out what resources are available in this area and how we can create partnerships in order to bring those resources to Wolf Street Academy. Um, so some of our kind of first points of contact were Maryland Food Bank because we did have a partnership. We've had a historical partnership with them um, and we wanted to know um, if we could potentially find a space to have a permanent, more permanent food pantry if it would be possible to have the deliveries for uh, for us, for Wall Street Academy, delivered to a different site where we could store the food and where we could do the food giveaway out of. And we're lucky enough to have a great relationship and great partnership with the Julie Community Center, which is just right up the street on um, South Washington. And they said, yes, we have a ton of space. You all can have your food pantry here. You can do your food giveaways out of here. It will be a nice way to bring the community into our space as well. So we had that all kind of set up, but food bank regulations, that was kind of our first roadblock. As the Maryland Food Bank said, you know, we can't do that. We cannot deliver on behalf of the school to a different site. Um, so Julie Community Center, that's one of the things they're gonna have to kind of look at this summer in the Maryland Food Bank renewal process or application processes. They're gonna have to look into becoming a site themselves. So that was kind of roadblock number one. Um, and then we reached out to a bunch of different places in the community that we know um, have different food resources. Um, reached out to a couple grocery stores, reached out to um, the food pack, which they were super generous with us and invited us to come to the food pack meeting and actually even had us do one of the um, round table discussions as part of the meeting. And it was not, most of those discussions are about sharing resources, um, but they let me be very selfish and just kind of be like, this is my table where I just network with people to see what others could potentially offer me. Um, so that was great. Um, one of the other organizations we got in contact with was Hungry Harvest. Um, but kind of unfortunately for us, Hungry Harvest does have programs in other schools close by, for example, Commodore John Rogers. So they didn't really have the capacity to bring their program to us. Um, and then finally we found you guys. So that was great. It was kind of after trying to contact with a bunch of different people, we found you all, um, which every Friday we pick up four boxes from you guys, that, and that gives a lot of fresh produce. Um, and then the other partnership that we were able to establish that gives us a lot of consistency is Commodore John Rogers. They have their weekend backpack program. Um, they get a lot of extra food, and so I uh, very generously, the community school coordinator at uh, Commodore John Rogers reached out and said, hey, I've got a ton of extra food. Anytime you want to take it, come get it. And so that's what I did. Every week, I would go and pick up a bunch of boxes from them. So each family 
on every Friday would get to pick fresh produce items that was supplied by the commission center, and then they would get a bag of um, non-perishable items cool. that we got from Commodore cool. John Rogers. Yep. Thank you, Leah. That is so great. It's been good to work with you this last school year, and I'm excited about the future things that we'll be able to do together. Um, hopefully, the neighborhood will rally around your efforts there at Wolf Academy. Okay, let's go back out to the street. I'm just pulling into the Compassion Center with this load of food that we received. And um, this is some of the audio from us unloading. We're walking up the steps. We're walking through the front door. People are coming in and out. They're hearing, They're beginning to hear that uh, food's available. And we're compiling a list because um, we only have a limited number of spots that we can uh, fill up for, for food. We're basically going to take the food upstairs, um, sort it into boxes, and then distribute it to uh, the people that are on the list. And it's a first come, first serve basis. What do we have today? What are, what's in the boxes? I'm recording oh. my podcast. Okay. Oh. What, do, what do we have, Batty? We have chicken, and lots of chicken, meat, hamburger, you name it, bread, and lots of bread. We have corn, we have cauliflower, we have salad, we have vegetables, we have crushed tomatoes, bananas, we have peaches, we have strawberries, we have blueberries, we have raspberries, we have stalks of corn. There's so much more that we could talk about, so much more that we could cover. I think I say that every episode. I am so grateful for those guests that appeared on today's episode and gave us a few minutes of their time. Um, Check out the websites and the resources that are listed with this episode online, whether you're listening on iTunes or on Google Podcast. Um, Again, I want to thank Haven City Church for sponsoring the podcast. We couldn't do it without their help and underwriting the process. And uh, share this podcast with your friends and neighbors. We do not have an advertising budget. We are hyper-local. And uh, the only way that people find out about it is by you sharing it um, locally with those who might be interested. Thanks. Have a great week. Robert, what did you do today? What they did? What they did? Everything. Everything? We all worked everything. Running up and down the steps. Yeah, I bet. I know. We need an elevator. Is it Jim? Jimmy? Jimmy. Okay, Jimmy, why, so you got a box of food. Mm-hmm. Why is this food a blessing to you? For the Lord, because I need it. I need the food. And what's your story? Well, I'm trying to find me another place to live. Uh, that's what I'm going to do, find me another place to live. Right now you live where? I'm living uh, with a friend of mine down in Limco. Okay. 603 Ann Street. My name is Sherry, and I would like to say that this is a God-sent ministry because they cut my food stamps off, and I came on Monday for, um, Wednesday for the, um, the prayer, and I thank God that he allowed me to come that way because, like I said, they cut my food stamps off, and I wouldn't have been able to have food for the month.